Morning Foothill, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We're looking this morning at verses 1 through 13. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Throughout the history of the church, the people of God have sung. We have sung to God praises, but we sing to each other, perhaps just as importantly, perhaps even more importantly. The people of God sing to one another that we might encourage and exhort one another to believe and to continue in the Christian faith. The songs that the church sings frequently come from the scriptures, that is that that the songwriters, be they men or women, are are inspired, and I don't mean in a, in, that the Spirit of God is working in them in the way that he inspires the Scriptures, but they are just moved to, to pen some poetry, and they're moved by something they have read in the Scriptures. So as you go through a hymnal or something, you will often notice in the upper left-hand corner that there'll be a reference to a particular Bible verse or passage that was important to the author as they penned the, the various lyrics of the particular song we're singing. Sometimes they're really good, and sometimes they're not. Everything that, that occurs in a hymnal is not good in terms of its theology. In fact, I've noted through the years, observed that the people of God are often willing to sing things that they wouldn't say. That's an interesting phenomenon. Well, there is a, uh, there is a hymn uh, and it, it was uh, composed in 1951 by a person by the name of A. Sevenson. And uh, best I could tell, nobody knows whether that's a man or a woman. So uh, he or she has now passed into obscurity, A. Sevenson. And the name of the, the hymn, it was originally a hymn, I guess you'd say, or a song at least, is called Give Me Oil in My Lamp. Give me oil in my lamp. And it appeared in a number of hymnals back in the 70s. And it passed from the hymnals into children's lyrics. So now, it's, uh, now it tends to be sung among the children's ministry people. And the first uh, stanza of this particular song says, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. I'd almost sing it, but... Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, keep me burning to the break of day. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) It certainly does not mean what Jesus meant when he gave the parable before us this morning in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 1 through 13. This parable and the next one here, so 1 to 13, and then the parable of the talents in verses 14 through 30, deal with the topic, deal with the subject, are written to the Jews who are alive at the time of the tribulation, waiting for the return of Christ. They are written during that period of time, or they are written to the people alive at, during that period of time, that generation, 
waiting for the coming of Messiah to establish his kingdom. The church, having been previously raptured seven years earlier, or sometime earlier, I guess you'd say, is is absent from the scene. And so these parables are not written directly to the Christian church. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have any value for the Christian church. There are many places in Scripture where it is not written directly to us, but that doesn't mean that we don't derive value from it. But the connection here, I think, is important as we, as we begin to look at these parables. And I want you to notice in verse 1, the adverb, then. You see that in verse 1, then. What that indicates to us is there is a connection between these two parables, 1 to 13 and 14 to 30, with the thought that has preceded them in verses Verse 51 of chapter 24, right? Chapter breaks are a later addition to the text, and so one would be reading or hearing this run together, and it would be a much clearer connection. But in particular, it's the phrase at the end of verse 51, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, there's a connection here. There is a further connection when you look up to verse 45, and there it's, it's a spoken there, uh, about two servants, two potential servants. You remember we covered this a few weeks ago. One who is sensible, one who is prudent, and one who is foolish. And so there is a, there is a connection there. Uh, there. There is one who is prudent and one who is faithful. And these two parables elaborate what it means to be prudent and what it means to be faithful. 1 to 13, the parable here of the ten virgins is a parable that elaborates what it means to be sensible or what it means to be prudent. 14 to 30, elaborate what it means to be faithful. So there's a close connection. That's what I'm driving at here. There's a close connection in this Passage. Jesus is continuing to hammer home this important point is that he is coming. He is coming to establish his kingdom. He is coming to rescue his people, his, the Jewish people. And the question will be is who will be ready for his coming? Who will be ready? Who will be found prudent? Who will be found faithful? Who will be included because they are wise? Who will be excluded because they are foolish? And the place to which they are excluded at the end of verse 51 is a place spoken of as a weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that expression in Matthew's gospel always refers to that place of judgment outside of Messiah's kingdom, the place to whom those who are not ready, not willing, not able to enter are consigned to a place of torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we're going to be looking this morning at this first parable, the parable of the ten virgins. And as we explore the parable together, we're going to see that it illustrates the the terrible consequences of not being ready for Jesus. This is a parable that elaborates the terrible consequences of not being ready for Jesus. Let me read it for you. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. 
Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, for there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. So we look at this parable together. I've just got a simple outline, really five words. Five simple words, that's our outline, to sort of walk us through this as Jesus illustrates this parable. And this parable, like all parables, conveys one main idea. So the first word of our outline this morning is context. Context. Verse 1, the context. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. We are immediately thrust into an alien culture, into something that is strange to us, something that we are not familiar with, something that we do not experience day to day. His hearers knew exactly what he was talking about, but for us, we have to put on sandals and and try to go back in time and, and understand what it is that Jesus is talking about here so that we can try to understand the greater purpose in the parable. So we are thrust right into the middle of wedding customs of the first century, and in particular, rural wedding customs of the first century. These are the kind of customs that would, that would be part and parcel of the fabric of village life. The majority of the Jewish people would have lived in villages, most of them in the north in Galilee, and so they would understand what a, what a wedding was all about. And so they would immediately identify here with what he's talking about. For us, we need to do a little bit of homework. So let's, uh, let's explore for a few minutes context here. So here you go. Marriages in the first century were generally arranged marriages. Arranged marriages. That, that means they didn't marry for love They uh, married because it was the right thing to do. So it's marriage first, love second. Marriage first, love second. You learn to love the one whom you are married. And by the way, that's not so hard to understand because I don't care if you marry for love. You still got to learn to love the one whom you married, right? We know that. We can understand that. But they married and and they would marry basically within their clan or their tribe. And now I don't have time to talk about all of that, but that was the general habit. You would marry within your clan, you would marry within your tribe. And it would be an arranged marriage. Once the marriage was arranged, the couple would enter what is called a betrothal period. They would enter the betrothal period. The betrothal period would last up to a year. During the time of the betrothal period, they were considered married. They would not... Uh, They were not able to consummate the marriage, so they did not come together physically, but they were considered married during that 
period. During the betrothal period, what would happen is the groom would go off to prepare a home, a place to to take his bride, a place to receive her. The bride would spend the time of the betrothal period working on her trousseau. That is, she would be preparing her wedding garments and, and things that she would need in order to set up house together. So this would be what the two parties would do during the betrothal period. And depending, if they came from separate villages, they might not see each other at all during that time period. During the betrothal, it's interesting, in the Mosaic Law, according to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 7, the betrothed man was exempted from military service. So he would not have to go out and fight. Why? Because he might die. And if he were to die before he was able to consummate the marriage, then he would not be able to raise up offspring. There would not be offspring of that marriage. And so it's important. They were considered married. It could only be broken by a divorce. And so he was exempted from military service. The marriage arrangement that would be, would be put together here would would include a written document called a ketubah. And in this written document, it would lay out the, the obligations and responsibilities of both parties to the marriage. So the man will promise to do this, and the wife will promise to do that. And it would all be uh, formalized, written down in a marriage contract called a ketubah. The groom would formalize, and of course the bride's father is the main party involved in this, right? So it's the groom and the, and the bride's father negotiating on her behalf. And so the groom would formalize the contract by making a gift to the bride. You know, something sparkly and big and made of coal on a, on a, on a gold band. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But, you know, he would make a gift to uh, seal the contract. Later the groom would pay to the family of the bride what was called a mohar or a bride price. So he would compensate the family, and again, it would be a negotiated amount, and it depended on relative wealth and social status and all these things. He would pay what was called a bride price, and this would go to the family of the bride and would, and would compensate them for the loss of a daughter. Also, there would be a dowry. So there is the bride price is separate from the dowry. He would make a gift of a dowry. The dowry would go to the father of the bride and he would hold it in trust for his daughter in case she were divorced or the husband were to die. So you could think of it as a life insurance policy. So the groom would prepay a life insurance policy. It would be held in trust by the father of the bride. At the time when the, when the marriage would be brought together, the end of the betrothal period, the father of the bride would also make a gift called a dowry to the daughter, which would, which would fund the initial uh, expenses of, uh, of this new relationship as they set up home together. Okay? So you can see some parallels in our wedding culture, uh, the way we do things today. At the end of the, of the betrothal period, the groom would, would leave from his home and he would go to the bride's home where there would be a ceremony conducted by the father of the bride. It was not a religious ceremony. It was a ceremony conducted there in the home. And as part of the ceremony, the bride's father would pronounce a blessing upon the new couple. And the blessing would be this. Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. That's the wedding. Okay, that's the wedding. They would stay and they would eat and they would you know, enjoy some time there in the, in the, in the home of the, 
of the family of the bride. And at the end of the day, the bride and the groom uh, would be dressed like king and queen, and they would process back to the home that the groom had been preparing for them. And they would be accompanied by the marriage party. They would be accompanied by the marriage party, and the bride herself would be veiled along the way. Okay? Her veil is not lifted until a little bit later. There, when they arrive at the groom's home, would begin the marriage supper or a banquet. And this marriage um, supper, this banquet, could go up to seven days. There would have been previous invitations sent out to the people in the village to come to the feast. And it could be up to a seven-day feast. Again, depends on the wealth of the families involved. And if the father of the groom was wealthy enough, he would purchase and provide wedding clothes to all the invited guests so they could be properly attired as they would come to celebrate this, this great event. Early in the feast... The couple would slip away to a prepared place where they would consummate the marriage. So that would happen early in the feast. Uh, During the festivities, normally uh, God's blessing would be asked upon the the new couple. And... um, uh, would, they would look for, for like a rabbi or a, you know, somebody to, to pronounce this blessing upon the couple. Uh, people think that's the reason Jesus was invited to the wedding feast at Cana in John 2, was to be the guy to pronounce the, the blessing upon the new couple there at the wedding feast. And of course, you get an idea of the magnitude of that feast, right, where the, you know, he converts all that water into wine, and you know, it must have been a gigantic wedding feast. Typically, weddings were conducted on Wednesdays. They were conducted on Wednesdays, and the reason they did that is it allowed the early part of the week for preparation. So you got to get the meal ready, you got to get everybody there, right? People have to travel to come. So they would be married typically on a Wednesday. The other other reason they would do this is because after the marriage was consummated, if for some reason the groom um, was going to prefer a charge against the bride in that she she was not a virgin, that he had been deceived, This gave opportunity for him to bring the charge before the local Sanhedrin who met on Thursdays. So you were married on a Wednesday so that on if something goes wrong, you have a chance to to, uh, take it to the authorities and have it it adjudicated. And, of course, they would would, uh, retain the the, uh, sheets uh, would be the father's proof of the virginity of his daughter. Okay, so it was all pretty much arranged in a very, I think, God-honoring but pragmatic sort of approach. So here we are in this parable with all of that. That's all in your background. So here we are in this parable, and, and what the background of this parable is, I, I believe, what appears to be here is, it, is it occurring at the groom's home? So this parable is occurring at the groom's home, and the guests are waiting at the groom's home for the groom and the bride and and the wedding party to arrive, okay? Part of his guests are these ten virgins, and and by this it just means maidens, okay? These are unmarried women. So they are friends of the groom's family, and they are waiting for the groom and the bride and the wedding procession to come so that they can join in to the marriage banquet and and the party when it begins, So they are waiting for the return of this young couple. Now, what would happen is as the the bride and the groom and the wedding party approached, then, uh, you know, it would be at night and they would have have, uh, torches, 
Okay, so they, uh, when it talks about lamps here, I don't think we should think about necessarily the idea of an oil lamp. It's kind of difficult to be walking along with a little plate full of oil and a whip hanging out of it, okay? What we should, I think, understand this to be is, a, is basically a torch. So a stick with rags wrapped around it, doused in oil, and then lit. And so that would be, as they approach the village, you would see the party, the celebration, you see the torchlights in the distance. And so the guests would go out with their torches to meet the wedding party and to escort them back in to the, to the celebration of the feast. So I think that's what's going on here. So these ten virgins, are, are um, their role in the pageant is to go out and to escort them back in to the feast. Now, notice uh, Jesus says here that the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to, will be comparable to. And it's important that we understand exactly what the point of comparison is. The point of the comparison is not the kingdom and the ten virgins. Okay, so it's not a point of comparison between the kingdom of God and ten virgins. Rather, it's a comparison between the situation brought on by the story of the ten virgins and the kingdom of God. That's the point of preparation. There are this the particular story, and it's just a story that Jesus has made up. In this story in which there are some that are wise and some that are foolish, that is the point of comparison. When the kingdom of God comes, some will be wise, some will be foolish. Okay? That's the point of comparison. So that's the context. Next word, contrast. Contrast. Five of them, five of the ten, were foolish and five were prudent. Verse 2. But when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Okay, simple enough story. The bridegroom's delay, uh, return has been delayed, and uh, the ten maidens get sleepy and they fall asleep. There is no criticism in the text here at all implied about the fact that they fell asleep. It's really just a point in the story in order to move it along. Okay? They're not criticized uh, by the, the reason that they fell asleep. The, the criticism is the lack of preparation. It's the lack of preparation. The difference, right? They both fall asleep. The difference is five prepare, five don't. Five are prepared. Five are not. Five are ready in case he's delayed. Five are not ready. They both expect to meet the bridegroom. Some are prepared. Some are not. They both, uh, as I say, uh, um, I don't want to say this. Uh, one author says that, that, that perhaps, and I, I think this is helpful, their, their spiritual condition would be analogous to the Jews at the Lord's first coming. Some were ready, some were not. Some had eyes only for the physical benefits of the kingdom when it comes. They would be the foolish ones here. They haven't prepared themselves spiritually for the coming of that kingdom. And then we have a crisis. Third word, crisis. Right? So we have a context, we have a contrast, we have a crisis in verse 6. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. At midnight. 
midnight. The, the idea here, I think, is the, is the point of eschatological climax, right? It, it, it all happens at midnight. At midnight, they hear the cry. They all wake up. They all scramble out. They're all ready to take their place in the line to, to escort the bride and the groom in. But some are ready and some are not. Their lamps have uh, flickered. Their lamps have gone out while they've been sleeping. So they need to redouse the lamps with oil. But there's a problem, isn't there? The problem is, is that five of them didn't bring any extra oil with them. Five of them have no way to redouse their lamps. Five of them have no way to, to relight their torches, and therefore they cannot go out and accompany the bride and the groom in. They cannot, it would be a complete social faux pas for them to go out there without having their torches. So they, they cannot go. They're not ready. But the other five have prepared, they have the extra oil, and, and they can pour it on the rags, and they can relight their, their torch, and they can go out. They're ready to go. And the foolish ones say to the prudent ones, right, give us some of your oil. And the prudent ones say, no, we can't do that because there's only enough for us. There's only enough for us. Again, there is no statement here about, boy, you, that's pretty cheesy. You should have shared, you know, and why can't two of you hold the same toy? I don't, you know, that's all beside the point. The point of the matter is some prepared, some did not. The ones who prepared had enough uh, uh, for, for what they needed, but they certainly didn't have any they could give to anyone else. And I think the point of it all is, is that when Messiah returns, preparation cannot be shared, nor can preparation be transferred. You are ready or you are not. This is the point. You are ready or you are not. So, the foolish ones, what are they going to do? The only thing they can do. They, they're going to make a quick shopping trip, and they're going to get some more oil, and they're going to hope that they're not too late for the banquet. Go buy some more oil, and hopefully you get back in time. Context, contrast, crisis. And finally, or fourthly, consequences. So while they're going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. So when he arrives... The procession, you know, the, the ones with the torches go out and join in. The procession comes back and the, and the party begins and everyone goes into the banquet and the door of the banquet hall is shut. For those who are on the inside, it's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful place to be. The bounty of a wedding banquet. And of course, the scriptures speak often using the bounty of a wedding banquet to speak about the wonders of Messiah's kingdom when it comes. It's a place of prosperity. It's a place of of peace. It's a place of, of incredible um, dining delight. Okay? You can get a millennial burger in the kingdom. Okay? So it's a great place to be when you are in. But once he gets there, once the people come in, the door is closed, and those who are left out are out. The door is not reopened. It's not reopened. In fact, notice what he says here. He says, truly I say to you, I do not 
know you. I do not, he doesn't say, sorry, you're too late. He says, I do not know you. I do not know you. And I think what he's saying here is, is that despite the outward appearance that you were waiting for me to come, by virtue of the fact that you were not prepared, you were never really waiting for me to come. You never really were looking for my coming. Never. We had no relationship. I never knew you. That brings me, in my mind, back to Matthew 7. Let's go back to Matthew 7, where we'll hear similar words. Matthew 7 and verse 21. Jesus says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. A very sobering statement, both there and here in Matthew 25. In both cases, there appears to be this idea that that outwardly they are looking for Messiah's return, but the reality of the matter is that they never were. They never were. And there in chapter 7, they're they're doing all kinds of religious activities, but he is saying, I never knew you. We had no relationship. Here in in 25, he says, "I, I do not know you. We have no relationship. And the fact that we have no relationship is evidenced by the reality. You were not ready when I came. You were not ready. Context. Contrast, crisis, consequences, fifth conclusion. Verse 13. Be on the alert then. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. Verse 42, chapter 24. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 36, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father alone. There is this continuing drumbeat. Be ready. Be on the alert. You do not know when it will come. You do not know. But you must be ready. You must be ready. So the moral of the story is really very, very simple. Be prepared. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Be prepared. Be spiritually prepared. Be spiritually ready to be received by him when he comes. When he comes. And you don't know when it's going to be. So there's a sense of urgency that accompanies all of this, right? 
So how do we apply this? Again, you know, this is written to, to the Jewish people alive at the time of the end of the tribulation and the coming of the Messiah's kingdom. The church having already been joined with her Lord and, and descending with him to, to occupy their place in that kingdom. So, so what do we do with this? And I think the answer is to ask ourselves a question, and that is who or what is competing for our affections? Who or what is competing for your affections this morning? We would say that we are, we are looking for, we are ready for the coming of the king. But the question would be is, are we? Are we really? Are we prepared? In the, in the, in the parable, are we the ones who have made preparation and we're ready? Or are we like those who say we're ready, but we're really not ready? So what is competing for your affections? What is it that you love? What is it that, you, that occupies your time, your thinking, your passions, your energies? Is it the Lord, the things of the Lord? Then you're ready. If it's not, then you're not. Then you're not. Now, I don't think I'm going outside of the parable here to apply it this way and to say that now's the time to buy the oil. Right? When's the wrong time to buy the oil? When's the wrong time to deal with your passions, your, your affections, your, your preparedness to receive the Lord? The wrong time is when the Lord comes. Because then it's too late. Now's the time. Now's the time to go buy more oil. Now's the time to, to deal with your affections. Before he comes. So there is, a, there is a sense in which this parable for us is, is a parable of, of introspection. To, to take this very simple message which says there are two groups of people. Those who are ready and those who are not. And when he comes it's too late for those who are not. And to say, are you ready? Are you ready? Maybe... Maybe you can readily acknowledge I'm not ready because I don't, I don't know Christ. I'm not even looking for his coming. And you're definitely not ready. Today's the day of salvation for you. Today's the day to, to look to the Lord, to, to recognize the, the, the fearful reality that, that each and every one of us live each and every moment in light of the reality that the Lord could return. And when he does, it's you're either in the kingdom or you're out. But for those who are, who are his, those, who, those who, are, who, who know the Lord, our lives can, can, can go off the track. It can, it can, we can be drawn away. Our affections can be seduced. And so the, this parable here is a, is a, is a, is a shout-out to, to come back and say, okay, what, what is it? What, what am I doing? What, what is occupying me? Am I ready? Am I really ready? May God grant us the ability and the willingness to take inventory. This is an inventory passage. May the Spirit of God help you to arrive at the right answer.
Let's pray. Father, this is just one of many places where it is made absolutely clear that when the time is up, the time is up. That there's no do-overs, no mulligans, no second chances. We often talk about that in terms of death. And that's a, that's a reality for sure that each and every one of us, we don't know the, the day of our death and, and it's appointed unto man to die once and then comes the judgment. And so we, we face that reality. But, but beyond that, Father, and, and actually the, 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 the greater New Testament emphasis is that the return of Christ can come at any time. And when he comes, we're in or we're out. We're his or we're not. And so, Father, as we, as we work through a passage like this this morning with that simple but stark message, I pray your spirit to do his work in us. Father, it's not my, not my desire to bruise anyone. Those tender sheep of yours whose, whose faith is frail, pray that it would not be fractured, that they would not, that they would not go into some kind of morbid introspection. But Father, I pray also for those who are overly confident that you would use this to break down some of that confidence and cause them to take a good hard look. Father, the reality of the matter is, is is that being your children is not just some event that happens in space and time historically, but it's a present reality. Each and every one of us. Not perfect, but making progress in the Christian life. Not our perfection, but our direction. So I pray this morning, Father, that you would invigorate sleepy souls those who are lethargic, those whose affections have been drawn away. That you scare them just enough to bring them running back to the truth. And Father, for those who are prone to depression, prone to that introspection in an unhealthy way, Father, I pray that you would work in them to to encourage them and to, sh- and to enable them to see signs of grace in their own lives that they might not live under fear of condemnation. Father, only you can do the exact surgery that needs to be done. We pray you would do it through your spirit, using your word, for Jesus' sake. Amen.